0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ben Voth. Ben is the professor of communications and head of debate for Southern Methodist University. He's also a senior fellow at the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. He heads up a lot of their debate research and uh, debate programming. He's also the author of Debate as Global Pedagogy, Rwanda Rising. Ben, welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Oh, thank you so much, Josh. I love the work you're doing, and it's- Great to be on your show. Oh, you're, you're too kind. I remember uh, you were one of the first people to be willing to do a, a debate recording with me a couple of years ago. I, if I remember right, we debated about electric cars and whether or not those were actually a good idea. That was that was so much fun. I'm looking forward tonight to uh, not so much debating with you, but rather to uh, learn from your expertise. Because uh, uh, part of what I wanted to talk with you about is a change that it seems to me that an awful lot of people have begun embracing. And that's a change uh, kind of dealing with race relations in the United States. So I want to see uh, tonight if we kind of discuss some of that, particularly around the idea of progress and whether or not this idea that seems to be becoming more and more current is actually true. I'm speaking of the idea that actually things have not gotten any better over the last 50 or 60 years or so. Uh, I I keep running into people either on the Internet or in real life who seem to think that the uh, Tension point between race relations in the United States is so bad that it's actually uh, the same or worse as it was in the civil rights movement. I know that's a particular area of scholarship from your, uh, of yours. Uh, could you uh, just share with us some of your thoughts? Have, have things gotten better over the last 60 years? Are we really at the same point we were in the 1960s? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I I sense the same urgency to that question that you're bringing to bear here right immediately. And for me personally, I've studied and worked and published on this question for over 20 years. uh, Where I originally started as a professor uh, at Miami University in Ohio, there's actually a a part of our campus that's dedicated to something called the Freedom Summer Memorial, which is a commemoration of the 1964 Freedom Summer civil rights activism in Mississippi, which many people do believe is one of the most incredibly uh, violent and sort of terrible episodes in terms of the question you're asking about race. And all of my first days of class and the 14 years I taught at Miami University started at that memorial with students listening to uh, Martin Luther King's August 28th, 1963 speech, I Have a Dream, and thinking about how that might be a rhetorical catalyst to their actions the next summer from that, that very launching point in Southwest Ohio, where they train to do voter registration and even to run summer schools for young Black youth, uh, a lesser known part of Freedom Summer. But I've really looked at this for a long, long time and been very passionate about it myself. And I I have, I think, the same concerns as the premise of your question, which is, to be blunt, I I think people have a misguided view here in 2021 that things are worse with regard to race relations than they were, say, 1964 or 1963, or, you know, take your pick of a civil rights era, Rosa Parks and the 50s or something like that. And to be blunt again, I think it is, frankly, disrespectful to those who suffered in an era that I... I studied uh, more specifically in my book about James Farmer Jr., a civil rights activist, his work from 1942 to 1967. If you look at that 25 year interval, there's a very specific engaged effort to encounter specific questions of racism. For example, de facto segregation, which literally moved blacks and whites into separate parts of buses, schools and water fountains. We know the story. When we say to ourselves in 2021, it's worse than it was then, we're disrespecting what happened in that era of 1942 to 67. And even going back to the summer of 1919, where there actually were were very serious, dangerous race riots in the United States, across the United States, the Tulsa riots being just one in 1921 that people are coming to know about. I think it's grossly disrespectful to the people who suffer in those eras when we say today in 2021, it's as bad or worse. And, and it's also uh, disabling to the successes against racism that have happened since 1919, 1921, 1942, 1960, You know, one. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different things that have happened in favor of the abolition of racist behaviors that we essentially ignore or deny When we say in 2021, we have nothing positive upon which to reflect, especially as it comes to the United States or, you know, something about U.S. history. So I'll pause there because I could say a lot more, but it's a really (laughs) urgent question. And I'll just say bluntly, like, yeah, I don't think things are worse than they were 50 years ago. And I think it's disrespectful to pretend that it is.
0: Well, I appreciate the clarity there. And here on the optimistic curmudgeon, uh, one of the freedoms we have on the show is that we're uh, we're we're looking to hear from the people whose expertise has really enabled them to speak clearly into what can often be a confusing area of public discourse. So, I, I think your your study has enabled you to do that. I wonder if you could help us put that into some more concrete terms. Where? Uh, so, I mean, I I can think of a couple things. I mean, it, it seems apparent to me that. Uh, whether we're thinking in terms of economic progress, there's been a great amount of progress in terms of uh, African Americans particularly entering into uh, what we might call without making any accidental racial pun, a white collar economy as opposed to a blue collar economy. And uh, same into the education space that there are more people of color with higher education degrees than there were uh, in previous decades. But I I think you can also see that in other places, too, in terms of a a general place in society and a sense that progress is possible and that you can see examples of progress. I wonder what you would uh, where would you take us to say, okay, here's yes, my answer is, yes, there are specific differences. But here are some specific examples of where you can see some specific tangible differences between 60 years ago and today in terms of race relations in the United States.
1: Yeah, Another great question. And there's some really great data on this. And I love kind of the general theme of this show and that you can kind of get into this, this sort of optimist curmudgeon thing. One of the things I do in class, and I wish I had kind of prepared the slides for this, but I think this will still be clear enough without slides. In 1968, the United States government constituted Uh, a really intensive report on metrics like you're intuiting here about high school graduation rates, unemployment, um, mortgages, poverty rates, and actually uh, about two dozen criteria were surveyed in terms of blacks and whites and their status in 1968 in the United States. One of the things I do in class to kind of illustrate the question you're asking is I, I put up on two slides, I put like 12 data points on the first slide, and then another 12 data points on the second slide. And it's in a a kind of a spreadsheet format. And then I asked the students, okay, in 2018, 50 years later, What's the data? I just want you to guess. I, and I give them sheets of paper with the Like I want you to write in the 2018 column, what do you think the high school graduation rate is for blacks versus white? What do you think the mortgage holding rate is blacks versus white? What do you think the poverty? I mean, and it's a pretty tedious little guesstimate list. And on, I would say 21 out of 24 criteria, I think almost every one of us would be shocked to see how much better the status of African-Americans is 50 years later uh, than it was. Now, And I will say, I mean, for what it's worth, there are things that jump out at people that are not better. Uh, And I think the number one thing that is not better, and I think people have and should talk about this, is the incarceration rate uh, for Black males. That's something that has gone up uh, over 200% since 2018, and it's something which our society ought to invest Uh, deliberation, debate, and policymaking to achieve better. And by the way, there are things that have happened in recent years that actually do uh, address that question. But I think one of the simplest things a person can do asking the question you just asked is take the the 1968 Kerner report, K-E-R-N-E-R, and then look at the updated 2018 report. And I think almost everyone's going to have their eyes open like, whoa, we've had phenomenal progress on crime, poverty, unemployment, mortgage holding, all kinds of different things, life expectancy, that that really, I think all the students I've ever done this exercise with, and I've done it multiple semesters now, they're they're just shocked. Because there is what I describe as an Afro-pessimist paradigm that infuses our thinking. It's it's actually most dangerous to the African-American community, uh, more so than I would say even the, the white American community or something like that. So the Kerner report to me is, the, sorry, I have some slides about that, but I, I didn't bring them for this, but that's my thoughts on that.
0: No, I think that's incredibly helpful. And honestly, I, I think hearing you describe that is probably more helpful than even looking at the slides, especially since we can, we'll certainly link to the Kerner report if I can find a link online. We'll link to that in the show notes so that if people want more data, they can, they can certainly get that. Um, now, I wonder, I wonder if you could tell us more about this uh, phrase, the, uh, the uh, Afro-pessimism or an Afro-pessimist paradigm. What is that specifically? And then how prevalent do you see that in the academic field of communication? What we're seeing in current society in terms of the way people discuss race relations and the way that it's studied and taught in really K-12, which is more my area of expertise, uh, but we see what sort of has trickled down from an academic conversation that I think has been happening for a long time. So help us with some of that academic high-level Conversation about Afro pessimism uh, in, in the field of communications. What's what's going on there?
1: Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I think again, it's an awesome question and one which can help us a lot. And I do think Afro pessimism is a fairly standardized term. Uh, not even uh, just in communication, where I, I draw my PhD and training from, but in a lot of different fields. Um, there is a a film professor actually by the name of Frank Wilderson, um, who's an African American sort of theorist. And, and he writes has written a lot about racism questions and kind of coining and using the term Afro-pessimism. But in essence, what Wilderson says, and this is actually very popular usage within college policy debate discussions, to say that racism is so overwhelmingly powerful in the United States and maybe the world, that it exists at a subconscious level that cannot be disrupted. Uh, And that's where you get into this ultimate cynicism, where, in essence, there's actually no policy position that anyone could take that would stop bad things from happening, primarily to African-American men. And Wilderson makes kind of elaborate psychological arguments. uh, And these are Arguments that do infuse a, a wide array of additional writing, like critical race theory, and even just backing out of race, even critical theory. I often try to explain to students that actually, what they're sort of confronted with in their collegiate years and coming from colleges and universities in the way that you're asking about is a straightforward question between idealism and cynicism. And this Afro pessimist paradigm is very much discussed and advocated within academic literatures. And Frank Wilderson is, is just one of uh, many examples and, uh, and a broader set of critical race theorists that are kind of popular in the headlines right now, I think, inhabit that same framework. And, and to be very candid, I don't think you'll find very often this phrase that I think I've sort of coined in response to that, which is Afro-idealism. And to talk about not that racism does not exist or has not existed or doesn't uh, exert defective influences on our society. I think that's sometimes how people will, may try to mischaracterize my argument. is that it's rather that African-Americans have a capacity to exert themselves heroically against such forces. Mm. And, and that's just a really simple thing that I'm trying to draw attention to in almost all of the four academic books I've written in the last like six years is to look at, for example, somebody like James Meredith, who's the first black man integrated to the University of Mississippi, uh, in 1962, it nearly precipitated a second civil war in the United States. But when you look not just at Meredith's action, but his own descriptions of those actions, there's clearly an idealistic framework to which he is able to succeed and have important successes against what I think, again, people could argue is structural racism in the state of Mississippi, uh, especially as it came to his collegiate education in that era. But when we I dare say, sort of default to Afro pessimism and say, look, racism's so bad, it'll never lose, in essence, in any social exchange. We're actually doing massive harm to um, African Americans and especially African American men. One last thing I'll say to kind of contextualize it to the original part of your question about communication I was at a communication conference in Baltimore where the panel was specifically looking at critical race theory and how to kind of promote it within our field and this pessimist paradigm. But among multiple panelists and the the communication faculty gathered in the audience, there was clear acknowledgement that what we were teaching was actually leading to suicides among Black activists nationally. And what should we do to try to minimize that outcome? Uh, And this was about in a conference about 2019, about two years ago. We seem to be very aware that we are prompting people to literally kill themselves over you know, problems of racism. And, and again, my point is that I say there's no such thing as racism or there's not any now, but that having this other perspective that is empirically proven, and I'd love to talk more about that maybe in a moment, but like James and Meredith, that you can succeed in reducing problems, including the one I was talking about earlier with incarceration. We just need idealistic models that are empirical to put in front of young minds so that they can see how they might further that. In another state or another country or whatever context in you know, a locality, but just simply saying racism is bad will never beat it. I can't see how that's really helpful to anybody, and it's a very big problem in my field of communication. I definitely agree.
0: And I think it's a the it's, it strikes me such a hopeless perspective, and uh, certainly the the optimistic curmudgeon was born out of an idea that we need to have a realistic perspective on the world, but we can't abandon hope. And so I think your, your, everything you're sharing points us to a problem, but it also points us at the same time to the potential for solutions to that problem. I, I almost want to disca- describe that in, in theological terms because, in uh, in a sense, if if there is a massive systemic problem, then the sin is out there. The sin is not in me. It's not my sin. It's not my problem. It's something that's so large. Even if I'm caught up in it, it's not really my fault because it's so much bigger than me. And yet, if I take the opposite approach and frame the sin instead as an internal individual problem that maybe is committed by the vast, vast majority of people, well, suddenly that then puts the responsibility back on me, the individual, to say, okay, this is my problem. What do I do here? If I'm acting in a racist or a biased way, that's something I can change. And if, if it is something I can change and if I recognize other people as rational, there is a way that, even, that, that it, even the most racist persons has some kernel of rationality that we can have common ground and we can find some way to interact together. But in the absence of that, there is nothing but despair and describing this hopeless miasma of destruction that can never be undone. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the the metrics you mentioned that you wanted to go back to. Um, you, you said there was a there were some measurable impacts that you that are really important for this conversation. Well, I,
1: I do think there are some empirical examples that are important in terms of what you're discussing. And one of them I, I did kind of allude to. I, I do think that James Meredith was, for example, successful in integrating to the University of, of Mississippi. That That was a big deal and I did allude to this a little bit earlier, but uh, James Farmer Jr., I wrote this book all about him in 2017, The Great Debater. He told his father in 1942, I want to destroy segregation. That was his Response to his dad saying, "What do you want to do with your college education?" Uh, and what that book that I wrote documents is that between 1942 and 1967, he did in fact destroy what I would term de facto segregation. In other words, the entire practice of where you go to water fountains and one says whites and one says, you know, blacks, and the buses and the schools, all of that whole system was deliberately and strategically using arguments destroyed. And one of the really prominent empirical examples of that were the Freedom Rides of 1961, where within that larger struggle, Farmer envisioned, we're going to get those two Supreme Court cases that said you can't segregate an interstate bus travel. That had been ruled in 1947 and ruled again in 1961. And Farmer said, look, we got to make this happen so they set buses up coming out of D.C. going all the way to New Orleans, mm-hmm. and it was a very difficult thing. It famously encountered what is basically terror terrorism at Anniston, Alabama, where that but one of the buses was firebombed on Mother's Day on a Sunday. People coming out of church with their kids to firebomb a bus. So I mean, it's there's no sugarcoating that this is vicious, mm-hmm. horrible racism. But ultimately, what culminates out of this, and James Farmer said in his own biography, "Labor of the Heart," in 1985, he said my most successful life accomplishment was that specific order in November of 1961. About four or five months after the May Freedom Rides, where a federal order was made, no longer can you segregate in interstate bus travel, and the Kennedy administration issued that order. It went into an effect. John Lewis was on those rides. His entire mental perspective that we know so well today is very much drawn from the violent instances, but the empirical success of that advocacy. And when we don't put those realities in front of young minds, we create a dangerous terminus of, yes, suicide, where they just kind of conclude there's nothing they can do. And, and, and I do want to go back to Meredith for a second, because Most people, if they know Martin Luther King's rhetoric, they know, of course, I have a dream. But the second most famous piece of rhetoric is probably Letter from a Birmingham Jail. That goes back to some of the the theological things that you're saying. But when, you know, and, and, and again, King wrote some of that literally on toilet paper inside of a jail cell. I mean, it's incredible that this piece of rhetoric comes to us. But in the conclusion of that long letter, mainly addressed to kind of fellow Christian pastors, he says, and I won't get it exactly right, but he says, someday the South will remember its heroes, men like James Meredith, who in a lonely, you know, solitary effort, you know, integrated, you know, collegiate education. But, you know, what's interesting to me is that I I don't think we actually know James Meredith that well. He's not a super well-known figure, even though he's probably, I would say, the most important civil rights leader who is still alive today. So when you think about like John Lewis recently passing, James Meredith is still alive, lives in Mississippi, still lives by this creed of optimism that we're talking about. And, you know, you don't see interviews with him and actually people find him to be relatively controversial, which I think is sad because King predicted that someday – uh, he'd be remembered now there is a statue for meredith on the university of mississippi campus i think it's a very inspiring and well done uh statue although interesting a little side note he's he actually was opposed to the construction of that statue um mm-hmm. oddly because and i can get where Meredith's is coming here he didn't want people to look at him as a hero he wanted people to see in themselves the possibilities of the kind of things oh, that he yeah. was doing and he didn't want, and he even used this term, he didn't want idolatry. And again, you could hear his yeah. Methodist Christian theology kind of spinning on this, that the statue would make it appear as if he uniquely could do it. Meredith is still a very passionate believer that anyone can, especially from an American constitutional perspective, which is one of the things that made his perspective different from even King and Farmer, an individual can encounter massive structures of injustice and topple them and probably very few people can claim as much success on that premise as James Meredith and yet we don't beyond that statue and there are other things that he did that I could point to we don't give I think enough lip service to him about like look this guy really did risk his life Um, and he actually did get shot like in 1967 doing a march or 1966 doing a march against fear as he called it so I mean that's again when we talk today, like, oh, we suffer so much more. I it's absurd when you go back and actually look at some things that happened to people, uh, of course, just in the 1960s. But let me just pause there.
0: That is fascinating. I love listening to that. I mean, it's it's I, I find it really exciting to listen to somebody who has studied so much about a particular topic. Like you clearly now, I think it's also fascinating. I want to see if we can bridge to a, a second area of your scholarship uh, with this with this question, but I know. Uh, There's something about the way you frame James Meredith as a debater, and he certainly was a a debater, Uh, but the other side of your scholarship, it seems to me, is focused on debate, and it's the way that debate uniquely helps people to hear people from a different side or a different perspective, and to see a common rationality. I want to see if we can kind of jump from uh, uh, the American context, maybe to a, a global context, Help our audience with some of your story about uh, your work with debate in Rwanda, and particularly, I I I remember you uh, you made this argument at the Coolidge Cup this past summer uh, that just I found very intriguing that the idea that you think debate could actually help lower the possibility of genocide. Did I I get that right? Yeah, no, that's right. And really,
1: uh, you know, since since my first book, this book, Rhetoric of Genocide, I wrote in 2014, I've had a pretty consistent thread that kind of goes in that direction, and the the simple premise of that. And I guess there's a couple of things that go into this. But I believe that the opposite of propaganda as a communication practice is debate. And I think the primary fuel of genocide is propaganda. Like whether you're Hitler or the Hutu warlords in Rwanda in 1994, you're continually infusing into the public propaganda messages like the Tutsis are cockroaches you know, and you're just relentlessly pushing that in an irrational, obviously irreverent, unethical framework. And so then the logical problem with regard to genocide sort of emerges about how do you counteract propaganda and its obvious successes, especially in the 20th century. And so all my books tap on this, but certainly rhetoric of genocide in most, in the most recent book, that you're talking about debate is global pedagogy, Rwanda rising, looks at that. And I got super in depth in that in this year's book with Rwanda rising, because I think Rwanda is an incredible case study in the question. And again, just one more precept before I go into that. The other thing that came out of the 2014 book was this really great quotation from Eli Bazell that says, what hurts the victim most is not the physical cruelty of the oppressor, but the silence of the bystander. And that bystander concept is pretty well examined in a lot of Holocaust museums across the United States and literatures on this kind of question. But notice that sort of the enabling mechanism is to speak and to not be silent. And I do think that debate is a unique form of rhetorical instruction that enables what I would dare say is maximum bravery to the disruption of that silence that's really kind of caged in propaganda, like people are just saying this crazy stuff. And then within that space of propaganda, are people just too scared to talk, Mm -hmm. you know? With debate, I believe we are equipping people to say, wait a minute, I don't think the Tutsis are cockroaches, or I don't think I should have to wear a gold star, you know, uh, on the streets of Berlin. Uh, So where does the courage come to disrupt propaganda? I would say it comes from debate. And so in this latest 2021 book, I look at Rwanda as a really important case study and some other things like the Coolidge Cup and the Coolidge format, but Rwanda is a very powerful case study because I think it is arguably the last major genocide of the 20th century. It's one in which, and this is new scholarship actually, that probably 1.4 million rather than 1 million Rwandans died in the span of 100 days between about April 4th and July 4th. And so that's a really shocking number, especially when you combine it with the, the total population of Rwanda in, in 1994, which is 6 million. So really verging toward 25% of the population got annihilated in a hundred days, primarily using things like machetes. It's a very unique, shocking instance of propaganda.
0: Oh, and oh, one sure. challenges us, go, oh, go ahead. Well, I just wanna make sure I'm tracking with you there. So. Unlike the, I mean, the majority of the Nazi Holocaust I'm familiar with, it happened, there were distancing mechanisms, whether people were in showers and gas came through, or they were in big chambers and they were either mass bullets or some some distance mechanism, uh, or whether it's on the battlefield and you're dropping, either you're dropping bombs from an airplane or you're firing a gun from dozens of feet away. You're talking machetes. You're we're talking 1.4 million people killed at arm's length, like up close and personal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I had to kind of cut from the book some really vivid material that is out there about you know not just machetes, but very blunt instruments and things like that, and the ways that people, including of course children, died are just almost unbearable to even read. And I, and I like I said, I did take some out of the book it was i mean there was there's plenty in there that 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 gives you indications of what you're asking about and it it is stunning and it tells you then that the propaganda was very successful that you're willing to stand in your neighbor's face like someone you knew just two days ago you were at their house two days ago and you are bludgeoning them to death there's something in your mind it's not you didn't drink something you didn't genetically just you were guided through rhetoric through argument into this mindset. So we have to have the tools at the ready to disrupt that kind of a mentality. And so the the quickness of this genocide, the intimacy of the violence in the way that you're asking about, all of them really fundamentally challenge our desire to see ourselves in kind of a benign, nice way or or in a non-urgent way. But I'm, I'm believing that we really need to instill debate in young people globally. That's kind of the thrust of the book. And that's the best uh, protection against future genocide. And And I called the book kind of subtitled Rwanda Rising because when they got to that low ebb of the violence, the average life expectancy for a Rwandan was about 26 years old. That's how bad it was. But in 2015, I asked the director of their debate program what he thought the current life expectancy was in 2015. About 20 years later, and he thought it was 42, but it was actually 62. And it's actually now in Rwanda about 64 here in 2021. So, and actually, they are one of the leaders on the continent of Africa in terms of rising life expectancy. And a lot of really good things are happening in Rwanda. And I attribute it to the building of a more open, inclusive society. And I think in some measure, these debate programs that they have that reach hundreds and even thousands of young people. And there's a a real key example in the project that we did in 2019. So that's where it kind of gets into the global reach of what we were talking about earlier.
0: So just to maybe try and connect these two halves together, if we have a mainstream society where there is a dehumanizing perspective that is being used to spur Hatred or hate crimes, really, again, from a majority culture onto another culture. Uh, in, in the American context, it's white versus black, but in the Rwandan context, it's the Hutus versus the Tutsis. Hutsi. Yeah, Hutsis. Hutus and Tutsis. Hutus and Tutsis. Now, help us with the specifics. I mean, maybe in uh, the uh, in debater language, what's what's the link uh, between debate as a pedagogical tool, because obviously, I mean, there's, there's one sense in which people can become semi-professional debaters and be on a national circuit and scholarship and all that. But I don't think you're describing that for most of the Rwandans going through this program. What is it about kind of going through a summer camp and helping be trained in the, the methods of thought that help people debate? What is it about that that really counteracts this propaganda that uh, really can be spread more easily than ever in an age of digital communication? right with social media and things like that and by the way
1: we know that even like radio was used in 1994 to really transmit there's been some debate about whether you know for example the united states should have knocked out radio towers to stop the process but more to your question about how might debate as an instructional approach change this in the first book that i was talking about with rhetoric of genocide i developed a theory That sort of answers this question at a theoretical level. And the theoretical construct is called discursive complexity. And there's a definition that I provide of discursive complexity says that discursive complexity is the capacity of an individual or a group or society to consider and express multiple points of view. So it's pretty straightforward. I think it's pretty easy to understand. I sometimes say to people, especially in American context, it's, it's like the First Amendment and freedom of speech, like getting to say what you want to say as a matter of difference with another opinion. And when we can do that, we have what I term, from an ethical standpoint, high discursive complexity. When we can't say what we want to say, maybe because we're fearful or we face retribution or punishment or even kind of social media stigma, we can find ourselves in low discursive complexity. So I think inherently, just immediately upon the task of debate for a high school student is for us to say, we ask that you consider at least two points of view, opposing points of view. We're immediately opening up the communication framework Mm -hmm. to at least two major and competing points of view that's inherently a higher form of discursive complexity than bringing someone to a point like, help me make more arguments that say the same thing as what I'm saying right now. The debate, if it's done right, uh, is going to cause students to reflect back and forth uh, upon a, a centralized question and cause higher discursive complexity. And hopefully an awareness of, how that contributes to the emergence of better ideas. I sometimes jokingly say when I'm doing this lecture on college campus, that if you compare North Korea and South Korea, those are pretty vivid contrasts in high and low discursive complexity. I say, the only person who needs to think every day in North Korea is Kim Jong-un. He's got all the answers. He's going to explain to you how he won the Olympic event last night. You know, it's all going to be him and his thoughts And, and your dissent and disagreement and counter arguments are not needed. Whereas in South Korea, there is more of an environment. In fact, there are actually debate programs in South Korea. There is a more robust discursive complexity. And therefore, they live longer. They're actually literally taller than their North Korean counterparts. And so discursive complexity, fostered by pedagogies like debate, make better society. But I bring that all the way down to like, your fraternity and sorority. You know, you can have one person doing the thinking, or you could try to create a deliberative model where multiple people are contributing thoughts. In the the greater minds contributing, I would argue, every time you're going to get better results. And that's where I think the debate training is really important.
0: I think there's so much of that that runs throughout the thread of uh, the, the particularly the the American experiment in self-government. I mean that. Going all the way back to that founding generation, there was the, there seems to be this conviction that uh, if we are all individual citizens who have a liberty and are going to construct our own ordered civilization, then we have to we're going to work together in these different associations and kind of there, there's sort of this necessity of uh, advocating your perspective and then hearing the perspective of others in the organization and finding a way to make it all work that I think has been part and parcel of the American experiment, kind of all the way through, uh, that maybe is part of our, um, uh, I feel like the word democratic values, that phrase is overused, It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it certainly seems part and parcel of the essence of a democracy as it's worked out in the United States. Now, how does uh, how does that strike Rwandan students? Is that something that they get excited about? Is this difficult to kind of get into the mental space? Is this uh, almost distressing? Like, how 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 does this strike students when they adapt to this pedagogy?
1: It's very fascinating what you're asking about, and uh, and the book again is centered around uh, my experience of 20 days in Rwanda doing what you're asking about. I spent 20 days. Uh, probably the first week was mainly spent teaching teachers, high school teachers, how to teach debate. And mm-hmm. that was in itself very interesting. A lot of it was done at the Kigali Public Library. A lot of it was done me just driving around relatively remote parts of Rwanda and just kind of finding myself at, I, I found myself at a very large um, Catholic worship center. And I, they had a Catholic high school in this remote part of Africa. And I had to ask the the bishop or kind of the leader like how many people come to worship on Sunday and he said 2000 and I was like yeah <laughs> I'm like oh my god that's like driving in there in this remote part that was not the answer I was expecting it was not some big urban area it wasn't Kigali for example or we were way out there and I was like wow and then then they have a school and, and I'll, I'll tell you and you'll probably appreciate this you know when I got through the teaching those Catholic uh, high school teachers they did have some reservations they're like well, what's going to happen if people use debate skills to advocate for lesser moral ends? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, dare we say, you know, anti-Catholic teaching. And I said, that's a very good question and one which you should be concerned with in terms of your moral interests. But I would only ask you this other question. How will you feel about releasing your students into a world without those skills and people being able to freely advocate against your moral teachings without them knowing debate? And they were immediately like, okay, that's exactly what we needed to hear. We're totally on board, you know, and so they were very much into that. But, you know, all the 20 days I spent, uh, and then, you know, that second week mostly was with this, the high school level students and still some teachers. But I got to say, and I'm, I have to admit, I'm a sensitive person. Like, I cried every night when I went to bed in Rwanda. Not because I was sad, but exactly just super joyful in terms of the gist of the question you're asking. The receptivity The interest, the enthusiasm, it was unbounded and it was shocking and it made me, I think embarrassed is too strong a word. It just made me ashamed to not covet what we're talking about more when I'm in the United States. I mean, I just take for granted that like, okay, we're going to have a debate and it matters, but it matters so much more to them and they wanted it so much more that I thought, wow, I mean, this is really precious. You know, and I, I wrote on, you know, Rwandan chalkboards, you know, the First Amendment of the United States. And I talked about freedom of speech and things like that. And and we talked about, you know, some of the differences. And it, it's not a perfect political society in Rwanda. And some people ask me about that. It's not absolutely open uh, in the ways that we might idealize, even in terms of the writing that I've done. But to see, you know, really roughly 400 high school students consuming that, and performing debates Mm -hmm. Um, I mean it was stunning and it was shocking and I and I shared this story this summer that you heard where one of the shocking things to me and I say this with you know three college-age daughters that I love but the way that women debated men shocked me because the women were so assertive and comfortable interrupting men in the parliamentary style that they were doing that I kept and I felt guilty like wanting to subconsciously hear the men be wait a minute you're that's rather forceful like what and the men didn't seem to sense the aggression that i was used to feeling out And i was like wow i have got this wrong and then I've, I've mentioned that the two top speakers in novice and varsity debate were women most of the people participating were women and in the book i note that rwanda has the highest female participation rate in its parliament of any country in the world which by the way is like 10 percent higher than like number two like they have a 62% participation rate and like the next highest is like 52%. So it is shocking what is possible inside of Rwanda and evident. And, I, and I've been there in 2017 and again in 2019, uh, I, I can't say enough positive about what you're asking about in that question. It definitely makes me want to go back. And I probably will be going back, you know, as regular as I can and actually trying to, and this is one of their dreams. They, they really covet possibly coming to America and going to a, American University. And in fact, in two weeks, I'm going to be doing a Zoom training, like kind of like this, where I'm going to be training them at a distance about this. And so it's, it's something where I wish everybody could directly experience what I'm telling you in the way of an experience. Uh, I'll just tell one more story. Like one of the high school students, not the high school student, it was a teacher from Uganda. He had, it was just such a random thing. And it goes back to what we started this show about he had a book about Martin Luther King Mm. and his advocacy. And he he said, you know, professor, I, I'm trying to figure out how did Martin Luther King learn these nonviolence tactics to, to do what he did so that we might do something similar in Uganda. And I was able to give him this James Farmer book. And I'm like, this is the guy who trained the guy you're studying right now. And, and it actually is all interconnected in the way you're asking about like, American civil rights leaders, King, Farmer, and Malcolm X, all traveled to Africa in the 1960s, wanting to connect the issues that you're asking about. Uh, Malcolm X was actually in Sudan quite a bit, um, and and both Farmer and King traveled. Uh, Stokely Carmichael left the United States and just pretty much stayed in Africa. There were a lot of things that kind of went wrong with that, honestly. But there's actually a tremendous connection going back into the civil rights era with this African part that we're talking about. So I'll, I'll kind of pause there and let you ask another question, but it, it's amazing in terms of what I, I saw and felt in Rwanda.
0: Well, I'm really, I, I'm really grateful to hear that because in part, I mean, I, I just think there's, and this is at least just where, where I'm sitting. I don't know that my perspective is right, but it, it seems to me that we are getting to a, a place in American society where it is harder and harder and harder to openly debate in a free exchange of ideas. It's not that it's truly hard to debate, but it's that the the debating sides, I mean, I'm sure you know, and hopefully our audience is familiar, to have a good debate, you need to have two legitimate sides. And when both sides are arguing a quasi-progressive orthodoxy and are really arguing for various shades of progressive orthodoxy being applied in an area, it's really hard to have a real discussion of, of different ideas. And it seems to me that we're we're very close to losing something precious. So, mm-hmm. and but something that other parts of the world have experienced rule under. I, mean, I, I took an African, his, a modern African history course years ago from a uh, a former South African diplomat, a guy named Art Grenham, and wow. uh, he just carefully walked us through the 20th century history of the continent of Africa from different parts mm-hmm. of the of it and our different parts of the continent and. Uh, But by the time I finished the course, I was absolutely convinced that uh, rule by warlord is one of the worst ways to live in human experience. Uh, That it's almost impossible to have any kind of human flourishing when at any moment a random person with a gun can walk into your house and shoot up your family and demand anything he wants. The ability to keep that seems to me tied very closely to our ability to speak freely and hear each other clearly. And so I just I, I love hearing you describe what uh, response of, of students who've grown up in a very different environment with a different history, different culture. They hear something that we kind of take for granted and, and maybe are or don't cherish to the extent that we should. And they, they find it absolutely vital. Well, Ben, we're uh, we're, we're running uh, we're running pretty close on on time. Uh, and I want to ask you one last question uh, before we kind of uh, as we wrap this up. Uh, and maybe just as a way of kind of final remarks to hopefully kind of tie the different sections of our conversation together. Uh, now we're part of what I, I want us to do on the optimistic curmudgeon is kind of always be looking for truth and to to hopefully replace areas of confusion with areas of truth. What would you say in, in uh, response to the idea that uh, debate is key to helping people live more truthfully in the world? Is that itself a, a correct idea, or would you want to nuance that? Uh, where, what, how would you respond to, to that idea? Well, I, I do think that debate is a vital
1: uh, pretext to the discovery of truth. And again, you were alluding to this earlier. And again, you know, not everyone has this perspective. But I do think, for me, there, there's a theology behind things. You know, what, what does God want or whatever? And I know in terms of the Christian perspective that I bring, it's intriguing to me that God apparently wants to talk to us. Uh, and, and wants to have a dialogue with us. And again, you know, for Christians, obviously, the gospel and Jesus's conversational encounters are are very intimate to that thought. And so, I do believe there is a, a desire as we approach the truth for there to be deliberation from a human standpoint. And I think it's the best check on some of our most dangerous impulses. And to kind of again make that vivid, even in going back to your warlord example. And, and I think it's kind of intimate to your, your initial question, like most of us in education, we say, and we're right when we say this little truism I'm about to say, knowledge is power. And we just say that so many times, you know, and that's why we're teaching. But what we don't reflect carefully enough on and why I didn't say that I think debate's so important is that power corrupts. Like, and we're not being careful enough with how, yeah, when we get that PhD and we, we get that judgment standpoint where we get to say how it's going to be, there's a power with that that can corrupt our souls. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I think a lot of my academic friends are like, whoa, what are you saying? I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And what would make me feel more comfortable about that power is if we were deliberating about the knowledge that we say we possess. And again, to go back to that Christian example, like Jesus is primarily in a dialectic with Mm -hmm. other teachers. And that's where I think we as teachers, we need to be in a dialectic about the facts and the truth. And if we don't, we're going to find the truth kind of fashioned in our own blunt tool way that I was sort of talking vividly about, you know, on the green hills of Rwanda. It's like, this is truth. You're going to do what I say or, you know, and and we want to say to ourselves, that's 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 primitive or somehow distant, but it's just not. And it. It did. And I I have some kind of shocking things in the Rwanda book about how anti-colonialism arguments were used as predicates to the violence in Rwanda. Now, anti-colonialism arguments are legitimate arguments, but they don't need to be fashioned into a way like you're a colonial collaborator, so I'm going to kill you. So what can we do to arrest that Habit that knowledge puts us on a trajectory of power that we have a hard time withdrawing from nonviolently. Mm-hmm. I think debates a really great way to put the guardrails on knowledge so that we don't go beyond that. And, you know, however we want to say it psychologically, our bad nature, our sin nature, if we want to be theological about it, we know whether we look at it secular or theologically, human beings will go nuts. When they get to that special knowledge power position where they know it all, and we should we should be you know and many universities have this slogan mine has this slogan, Veritas Liberabit Vos. I mean this is the Latin slogan you know from Jesus in John chapter eight the truth will set you free. I think that's a good marker for quality, quality truth you know in terms of the original question. But the truth that enslaves the truth that brutalizes the truth that you know, incarcerates, I think we've, we've got some problems with that truth. And it's the interrogation that I think sets us on the track of a truth that sets us free. And so that's why I'm so passionate about debate and kind of making this scholarly set of arguments to kind of go with that. And so hopefully this, 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 uh, this conversation sort of illustrated that, but you've done a great job of interviewing to that end.
0: Oh, well, thank you. You've been, it's been a delight to interview you today. This has been a really fun conversation. Uh, ben, where can people find your work online if they want to keep track of anything you're writing or, or uh, your work, or if you happen to be holding a debate tournament in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that they could travel to? Where, where can people find your work online?
1: Yeah, so online, a couple of really good spots, uh, benvote.com. I do have a website. I maintain it myself, so it's not the most awesome thing, but it works. It's got some things. Um, I also recommend checking out academia.edu That is a website that's kind of a warehouse for academics to put work online and sort of make scholarly works available. Sometimes these books, quite honestly, can be expensive, and sometimes I'll make select writings and work available for free through academia.edu. So go to academia.edu, look up Ben Voth, and you'll find some things that you can download and read in, in greater depth. I also have a YouTube channel. Just kind of go to YouTube, look for Ben Voth. And I actually read some chapters of these books that we've talked about. And so you can just listen for free to that. I even have a SoundCloud account where I read some of the audio uh, of my own books and things like that. So SoundCloud, Ben Voth, or YouTube, Ben Voth, and also BenVoth.com are all legitimate things. And of course, like you're saying, I welcome visitors onto the campus of Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Uh, always love meeting with people if they're able to be in that area, show them the campus and show them different things. I have a walking tour that I do that kind of actually illustrates some of these points like Veritas, Liberabit Voss and uh, etchings on the campus. There's a first amendment etching that we have. And I kind of, on the first day of every class, I talk about a lot of the things we talked about in this video. Uh, And in fact, there's a YouTube clip that does some parts of that if people want to see it. So those are some places to see me online and I'd love to, have those uh, hits there if you are interested.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, thank you listeners for joining us for this episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My guest today is Dr. Ben Both. The book is Debate as Global Pedagogy, Rwanda Rising. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at optimisticc3, on Instagram at optimisticcurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at facebook.com slash d-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, optimisticcurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good. Love the true and pursue the beautiful.